who are we? Who are those strange and complicated people who like to call themselves Americans? We're exploring some of the high points of the American landscape today on Travel with Rick Steves. Tour guide Rick Garman readies us for a street-level tour of Washington, D.C. to enjoy the city like the locals do, whether it's an air-conditioned look at our history or grooving at a street fair with a multi-ethnic vibe. Fifty years ago, John Kennedy said something like, Washington was a uh, city of northern hospitality and southern efficiency. And Ken Burns spent six summers filming the national parks. He tells us what a great idea all those parks turned out to be. If there were no national parks, the Grand Canyon would be lined by mansions of the rich. Without the national parks, Yellowstone would be called Geyser World. We'll start out on the beach in France, of all places, where the summer job is also a tradition, but this time with a real French twist. Load up that minivan. It's summer in America and France on Travel with Rick Steves. Summertime and the living is easy. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring some quintessentially American options for a summer adventure. Filmmaker Ken Burns explains how six years of filming in America's national parks taught him what a brilliant idea these places are. And tour guide and local resident Rick Garman shares some of his favorite things about Washington, D.C. But first, let's start with another aspect of summer, the summer job at the beach. But this time, it's in northwestern France. There are so many dimensions to France and French culture for travelers, and uh, one of them is on the beach. And my friend Patrick Vidal is a tour guide, and he also works on the side selling crepes on the beach. Patrick, eh, oui. tell me about this business. Okay, so we, um, my wife and I, bought mm-hmm. this little uh, little uh, wagon uh, a couple of years ago. A crepe wagon. A crepe wagon. Wow. In fact, in fact, the crepe is a little bit of a, of a side side thing. There, we do crepes, we do waffles, we do. Uh, we do sandwiches, we do cold drinks, we do ice creams, we do hot dogs. Hot dogs? Yes, we do hot dogs, French style. It's not exactly the same as the American, but we do hot dogs. So it's it's a pretty big unit. What's, the, what's the French word for a hot dog? Uh, hot dog. Hot dog. A <laughs> <laughs> hot dog. When some French person comes up, what do they ask? Bonjour, je voudrais un hot dog, s'il vous plaît. Je voudrais uh, hot dog. Un hot dog. Je voudrais hot dog, s'il ah, vous plaît. Hot dog. Ah, hot dog. Ah, hot dog. One hot dog. A uh, hot dog. A uh, hot dog. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. But you know, the, the funny thing about it, it is good for you, this one, because uh, in certain region of France, a warm sandwich, which is going to be uh, a piece of bread baguette. A baguette, yeah. With a bit of sauce, with salad, tomatoes, sliced tomatoes mm-hmm. in it. Then you add either a merguez, a couple of merguez, those spicy sausages from the North North African. Oh, yeah. Uh, normal sausages or uh, uh, mincemeat, like, uh, like hamburger. Okay. Meat. And then on top of that, you bump a big amount of fries. Oh, on the sandwich. Yes, on the sandwich there. So you serve it. It's impossible to eat. This is a very European thing, the French fries on the sandwich. Yeah, but don't call them French fries. No. They're not French. They come from Belgium. The French people acknowledge that French fries come from Belgium. But but French people don't even know Americans are calling them (laughs) French fries. Is that right? What do you call French fries? The frites. 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 Just fries. Yeah, fries. Yeah, just fries. The, the, the good joke about that is when, when, when there was this story about changing the name of the French fries into, uh, freedom fries. Freedom fries yeah. The French looked at each other and thought, oh, but we didn't even know it was called French fries. <laughs> <laughs> so if you want to hit us, they learn about it before. I mean, otherwise, not going to do the trick. Oh, you, you took away a name that the French didn't even, didn't know, even know about. <laughs> That'll teach them. Yes. Just finishing <laughs> with my sandwich there. Yeah. The name of this sandwich, this full sandwich I was explaining to you, is an American. That's called an American. An American. It's a baguette. It's a baguette. It's some vegetables, a bit of sauce, the the meat, and French fries bumped on top of that. You know, the the big thing is that the beach where I work is a surfing beach. Okay, where so is those, that now in France? It's uh, it's southern Brittany, next okay. to uh, uh, on the coast uh, between Nantes and so on the Atlantic coast. coast, just at the mouth of the Loire River. Ah, oh, nice. Just a little bit north of the mouth of the Loire River. Tell me about the beach culture. How did the French people enjoy the beach? It's very different from one place to another one because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've got a very large amount of beaches in France. I mean, yeah. we go from the, from the Mediterranean uh, with warm and, and very hot water there right. all the way up to the North Sea and the, the La Manche, the sleeve. You know, oh, that's the French word for yeah, the, uh, that's the, French the word English for Channel. The English Channel. Because the English thing, there's only one side of the channel, maybe. That's, I don't know. You uh, call it the... We call it la manche. What does that mean? The sleeve. 
Like the shirt sleeve. That's the shirt sleeve. Why would you call the English Channel the the shirt sleeve? Because if you look at the map, it looks like an arm. Between it does. The, the, two, the two countries. And it's not ethnocentric. Uh, a little bit less. A little than, bit less than so. the British Channel. <laughs> the English Channel. That's right. Okay, back to the beach here on yeah. the Atlantic coast of Brittany. This is not the the warm Côte d'Azur, the French no, Riviera, where you lay in, you just uh, soak in the sun. and, and You, you will still find water. people doing that and spending the day on the beach. But, but they'll come. it's a surfing culture. It's a surfing culture, yeah. yeah it's, a, it's, it's not huge. It doesn't compare to a lot of the spots you find all around the world. But for Britain, it is one of the only spots where they've got regular waves. Not very big, but regular. Okay. And so you've got a lot of those young kids coming there. My wife is very happy because she's got very, very sculptural boys all the time coming and getting their combination out. And, With and the sculptural sure bodies there, sculptural huh? body. Yes. And are these French boys That's mostly? Great. Yeah, yeah, it's very, it's very good. And they're, they're mostly French. Yeah, is, most is the water so cold they use a wetsuit? Absolutely. It's pretty cold. And uh, you have, when okay. you stay in the water, and they stay in the water for hours. You know those guys on their on their on their surfing board waiting for the wave. The wave uh, is the wave coming. So when they're coming out, imagine they are starving. Anything which has got more than a thousand calories in a square centimeter is good for them. So this American sandwich that I was talking about with the French fries, with the meat, with the piece of bread, is what they they die for. We sell so many of them. Even if the weather is hot outside, they'll come and get their sandwiches. It drives us mad because we are in a little hut and it gets hot in the thing and we've got to cook those things. But hey, that's it. I'll have to check out your beach and check out the surfing and have an American. Uh, voila, you come for an American. A sandwich that, as far as I'm concerned, has as little to do with America. Oh, nothing. I've got no idea what the name is going for. <laughs> as French fries have to do with France. Yeah, French toast. What's, What's French, French toast? French toast, I don't know. French people don't know what French toast are. <laughs> French fries, French toast. Yeah, there's a lot of things like that. Mr. French's Mustard? Yeah. French's Mustard back Mr. in the French's old days. Mr. French's Mustard, that's a good That's one. an English company. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're learning about the French with a French friend of mine, Patrick Vidal. Patrick, I'm sorry, I don't want un American. I don't want un hot dog. I'd like a crepe. That's now, good. what are my options at your crepe stand? What are your options? The, the big thing is when you're in Brittany, when you say crepe, you're talking about a uh, sweet one. And Brittany is the land of crepes. Brittany is the land of crepe and galette. Galette. So uh, galette anything anything which is difference? savory, it's it's going to be a galette. Anything which is sweet is a crepe. And also the dough is made from black wheat. Buckwheat yeah. for the savory, Buckwheat. the galettes. For the, for the galette. A dessert and, crepe. And normal wheat for the crepe. Okay. Now let's talk dessert crepes. I've already had my savory dish. Voilà. You had your American. Well, yes, I had my American. Okay, what are so my options? So your options are, uh, you can have it with a bit of butter. Right. So salted butter. Because salted in butter. Brittany, all the butter is called demi-sel with ah, a little... And the people are very discerning for the quality of their dairy products. Very, very important. Very important. Butter, butter is Brittany. is a big, so big thing. So if you've thing. got a crepe stand in Brittany, you better have good butter. We. Oui. Yes, right. it's very important. What and else? On top of that, I live, I live next to Guérande. And where, where our stand is, and Guérande is one of the main places in France where they produce, uh, they hand produce salt. Sea salt. Sea salt. Hand harvested sea salt. Uh, oui. I so you've, that. you've got those little fields of, uh, of water that they let the water come in. Okay. And they've got a very, very narrow amount of water. So very high shallow. expectations here. The very, very best salt, the very best butter. Mm. Okay. So that would be the simple sort of the pure crepe oui. for dessert. Then you go to beurre sucre, butter and sugar. Right. Okay, so you add a little bit of sugar. There's already a bit of sugar in your in your dough anyway, so right. with butter it's fine. But bursuk, you add a bit of sugar. Then you get to the little bit of the more fancy crepe. So how do you gild the lily here? What else do you put on the crepe? So the main thing, the more simple ones are jam mm-hmm. on one side. So very often if you go to a normal stand, it's going to be apricot and strawberry, something basic. And then the one which is the most popular that the people crave for is the Nutella one. Oh, Nutella. The yeah. Nutella one, yes. What is Nutella? It's a chocolate nut, right? Chocolate yeah. nut, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's very popular. A, very popular. It's huge in France. I mean, uh, we, I think on one summer, we sell something like a little bit over 150 pots of Nutella. 150 pots of Nutella on the crepes, on the waffles, on the gaufres, okay. on those uh, little uh, beignets we sell as well. They want is them that, What is the most popular with children when they're ordering a crepe? Nutella. Nutella. And what if I want the most expensive crepe? Uh, So if you go to the most expensive crepe, you will uh, certainly go for a little Grand Marnier. 
I love that. So in a stand like mine, it's just going to be a little bit of this alcohol on the crepe as you're cooking it. If you go to a restaurant, they might even flamb it for you, just like burn it. It right, comes yeah. on the on the on yeah. the pan, and it's the flames are coming out of it, and it's lovely. It's very very nice. Anywhere I'm traveling in France, if I want just a good, basic, quick meal, I go for the the dinner crepe with the ham and the cheese and so on and mushrooms. And then, of course, you've got your dessert option. When you go around France and you want a crepe, how do you distinguish a good crepe? You know, the, the first thing is about if I want to have a meal with them, uh, I want to find a place which is run by Brittany people because they'll be the only one having really the backwit one. Okay, so for the galette. For, for the galette, for the savory one. Then for, for the crepe, Overall, you can't get very wrong on the dough to make the, to it's make a beautiful the thing. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's very easy to do. It's fresh. I mean, uh, you, you do it yourself. Do you care if uh, when you go to a creperie just on the corner in Paris, you have a stack of pre-cooked crepes and you can make one right now? They cook them in advance sometimes. I'd rather have the one fresh. I like it fresh. Right in front of me. It's always better. Is that okay to ask for, please, make me one right yes, now? Yes, absolutely. No yeah, problem. Yeah, no, no, they'll do that for you. I mm. can just say, please, make me one right yeah, now. Yeah, they'll understand that. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things I've, I've, I'm, I'm always dealing with with my wife. She likes to prepare as many yeah. crepes as she can before. But I said, no, no, I mean, people yeah. like to have it it's done. A for it's a ritual. Yes, and it's nice to see it done as well. On I the, like on to the, see the little bubbles. On the, on the pan. The beautiful sweeping circular motion. The, na- the name of the big, the big, uh, how do you call that? The big round thing they cook the crepe. Yeah. it's called a bilig. A bilig. Yes, B I L L I G. Okay. A bilig. Like a frying pan. Hmm? Yeah, flat, completely flat, a yeah. bit larger, right. and it can run on gas, can run on electricity, and uh, you just run a little bit of of this mm. dough there, and you run with your little your little flat instrument. You make your crepe round. You you turn your crepe. You turn. That's what it's yeah. called. You Tourne turn. Like it's that yeah. beautiful smoothing yeah, motion. Exactly. How much does a crepe cost? A Nutella crepe. Oh, uh, anything between one fifty and three euro, depending where you are. You so know, like, like anywhere else. two or three dollars. Two, two, two three, three and you yeah. get yourself a beautiful dessert mm-hmm. made by a beautiful Brittany person mm-hmm. and a beautiful memory while so, you're in France. Sounds so good. Patrick Vidal, bon appétit and bon voyage. Merci, Eric. Share your favorite part of summer at the beach with us, whether you like to spend it at home or abroad, relaxing or making a little extra cash. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com, and you can post your comments in our radio message board at ricksteves.com. Up next, we'll look at two essential parts of the great American summer vacation. Coming up in a bit, Ken Burns returns to help us appreciate just how good an idea the national parks really are. With hundreds of national parks, plus thousands of historical sites, more than 100,000 miles of designated shoreline, rivers, and streams, and all the national landmarks and heritage areas that the National Park Service oversees, there are bound to be more than a few places that are just right for creating a lifelong vacation memory with your family and friends. We'll also take a fresh look at exploring Washington, D.C., humidity and all, with an insider's tips for the nation's capital from street level and underground in the cool and air-conditioned comfort of the Metro. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The summer heat, the crowds, the array of choices for what a visitor can do in Washington, D.C., it can all be overwhelming. 
So we've invited Rick Garman, a tour guide and 40-year resident of Washington, D.C., to expand our view of the nation's capital and to help us all better enjoy the city he calls home. Rick, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, Rick. Now, Rick, when you think about Washington, D.C., it's a unique mix as far as a urban sort of environment in the United States. It's actually got one of the best demographics as far as international mix. I think about 20% of the people in the area are born abroad. Are these diplomats uh, coming in? or Well, some of that, and some people are coming for some of the think tanks and things like that. But a lot of them are just like any place in the United States. They move there for opportunities. It's a transient city to a certain degree, isn't it? Less than it used to be. It used to be really well known as people would come in for every four years for the politics and then leave. But they started staying after a while. Is that right? Yes. Because they like the city? Uh, They like the city, they like the opportunities, and it's a great place to be. So it's less a transient city. They stay, they go into power and out of power, but they stay and enjoy the town. Yes. What do you like about the town? Uh, It's actually a great city. I like it because it's a very cosmopolitan, world-class city. It is our nation's capital, but in the last 40 or 50 years, it's become world-class. It reminds me, I think 50 years ago, John Kennedy said something like, Washington was a uh, city of... Northern hospitality and southern efficiency. (laughs) Northern hospitality and southern efficiency. I think today he would find it much different. It is right on the line between the north and south historically. It is. In fact, I was talking to Ken Burns. He suggested using Washington, D.C. as a base for appreciating and enjoying uh, Civil War sites. Yeah, in fact, some of the major battles are less than an hour away. Manassas is less than 30 minutes away. Mm-hmm. And uh, Antietam, which is another major battlefield, is probably another you know half hour away in Maryland. A lot of battlefields in the area. And, of course, you've got museums and sites right in Washington. Uh, the most, most famous one is probably uh, Ford's Theater and the house where Lincoln died across the street. And we got an email from Luann in Ravenna, Ohio. Luann writes, Every year, I spend at least two weeks visiting Washington, D.C. I have a different experience every time. I always get a senior pass at Metro Central. My daughter just moved to the Capitol Hill District. I love exploring this neighborhood just a few blocks from Union Station. It's a wonderful local atmosphere with interesting little restaurants. Eastern Market is a must. Tell us about Capitol Hill District. It's just right there next to Union Station and the Eastern Market. Well, luann has got a couple of great suggestions there. Uh, first of all, Capitol Hill is one of those neighborhoods that, uh, yes, a lot of people that live on Capitol Hill are people associated with uh, the Congress there, staffers in the Hill and so forth, maybe even congressmen and everything. But it's, it's a real local neighborhood. And I think Eastern Market is the uh, sort of hub of the neighborhood. Eastern Market is one of these original markets from 150 years ago where they created to sort of regulate the quality of the food and everything. And it's the only one that still exists. It's like, uh, you know, the Florence Market or whatever in Europe. It's a big building. It has uh, weekend farmer's markets, believe it or not. It has inside. It has places to buy meats and produce and everything. But it also has wonderful flea markets and craft markets and everything. It's uh, just east of the capital, I think 7th Street or so. So if you like the commotion, the hubbub of a big urban environment, Eastern Market would be on the list. And I think Eastern Market's a great way to rub shoulders with the real locals. And you get there, and that's that's who's going to Easter Market, the people that are out shopping for their, their the, produce the, the and real goods people. and everything, yeah. the real people. All right. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Rick Garman about Washington, D.C., his hometown. Uh, Luann mentioned in her email that she gets the senior pass in the metro. I think you can get it like an all-day pass in the metro for 8 bucks or something like that. I think it's $9 now. Actually, the metro is a great way to get around if you're staying anywhere close to town. You should understand that it's not a flat rate. So the fare depends on the time of day, like peak fare, like rush hours higher, the length of the the trip and so forth. And you have to get a a ticket that you put into the turnstile. It comes out, you take it with you, and then you put it into the turnstile when you leave, which Ah. subtracts the amount from it. And you can put more on that that fare than you're going to need for one ride. So So it's more like London as opposed to Paris, where you pay for how long you go. Yes, and Luann's thing about a senior uh, discount is true. You get about half off if you go get a special a fare card that's for seniors over 65. In addition, you can get a one-day pass, as Rick said. I think that's $9. You can get anything, anything up to like a one-week pass, which right. I think is 47 now. And it's really a well-used system. In fact, it's the second busiest system in the United States, 700,000 people a day. I think it even had more than that when I was there on Obama's inauguration. Well, I think it did set a record <laughs> that day, yes. I was. Everybody was thankful for the metro, and it was just like the only way to get anywhere in this town. Well, when they shut down for any big event, you use the metro, I suppose. Yes, in fact, the metro really is a great system. It's actually gotten to the point where it's too busy some days, as you pointed out. Right. But if you look at a map of the metro, every line crosses downtown. So it's you can get almost anywhere downtown with some exceptions of like Georgetown or whatever. Do local people use the metro to come in even from uh, National Airport? 
In fact, National Airport is easy to come in to D.C. because it is right on the metro line. I think that's an important point because a lot of us, when we do our travel around the states, you know, you just hop in a taxi because you don't want to mess with the figuring out mm-hmm. your public transit. But in D.C., you got that metro right at National. You hop on and, and you're downtown in a, in a flash. Yeah, it's like three or four stops later, you're, you're downtown D.C. The other thing is that some people are looking for places to stay. If you If you look at where those metro lines run out into Virginia, for instance, you see that uh, it's really easy to stay in, in Arlington, right across the river in Courthouse or Boston, and take the metro right and in. And get a more affordable hotel. More affordable hotel. That's you know, a beautiful Three, trip. four stops, you're in downtown if you, D.C. If you're going to take one stop, you might as well take four and save $100 a night in your hotel. Exactly. They've got an extension planned out to Dulles now. Is that finished, or what's the story? No, it's not finished. It's <laughs> in the process of being built. I think it's 2015 or so that it's 2015. Be. It's a, a lot of it's underground, and that's going to make a lot of money. Dulles a lot less painful because I just dread the times when my travel agent says you're going to have to fly into Dulles. Dulles is a great airport, but it is hard to get into D.C. from there. You have to take a, either a regular bus to the, the metro or a shuttle down to National Airport and so forth from there. Now National is so close, right? It's National's right, right across the river from D.C. They shut it down at night just so people don't hear the noise or. Yes, 11 o'clock or midnight is the last flight. Let's talk about the lay of the land because Washington, D.C. is kind of a planned city, and some people like the plan and some people don't. It is a planned city. In fact, uh, the reason it exists there at all is because, obviously, historically, they had an argument about where the national capital should be, and the north and the south argued about that, and they finally decided on the marshes along the Potomac River. And uh, Basically, they said nobody gets it? Nobody I mean, gets it. They decided that it would be a 10-mile by 10-mile square. Okay. right along the Potomac River. If we think political controversy started in our generation, it didn't. George Washington was president at the time, and uh, he made sure that that square was changed a little bit so it included the town of Alexandria in Virginia, where he had property holdings. And uh, because of that, Congress put a special stipulation in that no federal buildings could be built in Alexandria across the river, so George Washington wouldn't be... Uh, wouldn't profit from Wouldn't that? profit from George Washington, the, the, father, the, of our the father of our country... Gerrymandered the border so he could make uh, money on real estate. Bit, just a little bit, Rick. Uh, oh. And actually, uh, a good point is that uh, before there was a Washington and they planned the city, there were two cities there: Alexandria in Virginia and Georgetown on the Maryland side. Oh, really? And they both had populations of about three thousand. They were major port cities, and then they planned out this new city of Washington. Uh, Pierre Lafont planned these. Okay, so it is a European neoclassical design city, a planned city, a grid planned city. It's got quadrants and it's supposed to be yeah, logical. Major avenues and circles and so forth. If you look at it, it's a very geometric pattern. And that was imported from some fancy European. Well, Lafont from France did it, but actually it was one of the first real planned cities. Uh, when they finally did Paris about, uh, you know, 80 years later, they used some of the same design principles. It's fun to look at the map in Washington, D.C. And, and see the diagonals and the circles and the grids and to think, ah, somebody planned this, and they planned it a long, long time ago. They did, in the 1790s. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're visiting our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and we're joined by Rick Garman, who's lived and worked there for 40 years. So, Rick, living in Washington, D.C., you must have guests that come and visit you, and they want to see the city in a day. What do you recommend when you have a guest coming in? You know, you got a little bit of time, but you want to get a good, well-organized approach to the city for a day. Actually, monumental Washington is what most people are interested in, and that's uh, at least seeing the Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial, White House, you know, Capitol Hill and Congress and so forth, and possibly visiting one or two of the Smithsonian museums, which are terrific museums. The two museums I would especially recommend in the Smithsonian are the American History and the Air and Space. They're quintessentially American. You can see art in many places. You can see other things many places. But the right. American History Museum, I mean, seeing Julia Child's, you know, kitchen or, or Dorothy's ruby red slippers or something, that's Americana. That's and Americana. And the best place, hands down in the country to see it, is at the American History Museum. Yes. And the yeah. other one, the Air and Space? Air and Space. Uh, best Air and Space Museum probably in the world. I can tell that because when I'm there, half the people there are Europeans speaking German <laughs> or French or whatever. Now, if you're interested in um, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all this kind of stuff, National Archives... National Archives, I think, is a sort of a surprise in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's right along that same monumental avenue. Most people go there on their second or third trip. They don't hit on their first one. But I think it's one that every American probably should at least go see the Constitution. You can pop right in. You can it's walk easy. up the stairs in, and there it is. And it's a very small. It's you know five or six documents or whatever. My big uh, suggestion to people, though, if you have some time, is to go around the backside of that building. And uh, they have a research area down there where you can pull microfilm and digital stuff and everything and search your own ancestors. They have military records, Indian War records, 
uh, census records. There's nothing like going down there, pulling an 1890 census and finding your great grandparents listed in, you know, someplace in New York or someplace like that, that where they Wow. Live. Do you have to uh, make an appointment and do not have to make an appointment. You just pop in, it's free. You, you pop in, it's free in the world. One of the perks of being a tax paying American citizen. Yes, it is. Very nice. And they have a lot of things that have not been digitized and are not online yet. Wow. Now, there's new museums. Museum, the International Spy Museum, the Holocaust Museum. The museums like Museum and the Spy Museum are not federally funded, so they're going to cost you some money, around uh-huh. $15 or $20 a person to get in. But they're great museums. The Museum, Museum is uh-huh. a uh, basically about newspapers and print and TV and so forth. Great museum, and they have really good exhibits, but they also give you a chance to, to get up in front of a monitor and pretend that you're a weatherman and they film you, the blue background and so forth. Really, really fun museum. The Spy Museum is obviously, just like its name, it it focuses on spies. And for the most part, I'd say Cold War. But it has a whole history of spies and and all the the secret material they use and all that kind of stuff. It's located right downtown, easy to get to. Holocaust Museum is free. um, Unless you have to make a reservation, then it's a dollar during busy times. Mm But uh, focuses on the Holocaust with some exhibits on other areas of uh, time periods and history and powerful so forth. Powerful moving opportunity. Very powerful. Um, I won't give out its secret as to how it does it, but it really draws you in to being there at the time and a uh, very powerful museum. Speaking about powerful and emotions to stir our American soul, the monuments are just beautiful. you you got to love the monuments, and they're good at night, too. Monuments are especially good at night. I mean, they're well-lighted. It's a great uh, idea, I think, to yeah. do them at night. Yeah, the, especially something like the Lincoln Memorial or Jefferson Memorial. Those just look grand at night, even better than during the day. Right. You know, the Washington Monument and all that, uh, they don't take any time, except for the Washington Monument, they don't take any time to really go into and see. There's not really right. much there except some quotes and everything, but they're really just spectacular monuments. Hey, these are great Americans. So it's a great monument. And there's them. monuments we don't, I mean, Washington, Lincoln, and Jefferson, you all know about those, but there's a lot of other monuments that, depending on what you are excited about in American history, can really strike a chord with you. I mean, I just was very moved by the uh, FDR, the, the Roosevelt Memorial, and you just walk right through it. It's got all its quotes. It takes you right back to the tough times in the Depression and pre-war and World War II. I think that the two that come to mind when you talk about emotional are the uh, Vietnam Memorial and World War II Memorial. Vietnam Memorial, because it's one of the few memorials in the world that celebrates the individuals, the sacrifices they made as opposed to the grand battles and so forth. And uh, it's just that, that stark black wall with the names on it, and it's just incredible moving monument. Uh, the World War II Memorial is different, but it's still, I think the most moving part about that is you still have a lot of World War II veterans that show up right. with their families, with right. groups, and just hanging around listening to them, maybe for the first time telling their story to their, their friends or their relatives is a moving experience right there. They know that they're reaching sort of the end of their life, and being there with the World War II Memorial is lets them open up a little bit. Before we leave sightseeing and so on, a lot of people want to check out the Capitol building or the White House. We're in an age of a lot of security these days. What's accessible and, and what's worth seeing? Well, after 9-11, security really tightened up on everything. And as an example, for the White House, if you wanted the White House tour, you no longer show up and get in line. Months in advance, you have to uh, send your name in. Basically, you go to your congressman's homepage Mm -hmm. and you download the form or fill out the form. You fill it out in all sorts of information, and then they do uh, basically a background check. Basically, you need months in advance before you can get cleared for a White House tour. Perhaps much easier and more accessible is a tour of the Capitol building with your congressman? Yes. If you call or contact your congressman in advance, you can quite often get a tour of uh, the Capitol building. There is also a visitor center for the Capitol where you can go in. There's a lot of exhibits. That's and so this forth. new underground center? New underground center, yeah. Now, that looks quite striking. I've not been in that. That's yeah, a, that and that at least gives you a, a feel for it. And, and I think if Congress is not in session, sometimes they run some special tours. But neither one of those buildings, for obvious reasons, is uh, very accessible at this point. Right. All the sightseeing, you work up an appetite. What are the highlights from a cuisine point of view when you're in Washington, D.C.? Well, that is one of the great things about being a city with so many uh, foreign-born uh, people is that you have just an amazing amount of restaurants. Uh, areas like Adams Morgan, for instance, are well-known for having dozens of restaurants of lots of different kinds. You could take the, the metro to Adams Morgan. Adams Morgan, yeah, DuPont and then Circle area. DuPont Circle and just you could walk around. Yeah. And one of the best guides is the Washington Post, the big newspaper in Washington, uh-huh. has a great little section called Going Out Guide. Okay. And they have, obviously, events and things like that, but they also have a lot of restaurant reviews, some of the new ones that have opened and so forth. I think Washington's got to be one of the few cities in the United States that has multiple Ethiopian restaurants. But 
but lots of great restaurants. Obviously, a lot of Latino restaurants and so forth. Our daughter goes to Georgetown, and every time I visit, it's just a great chance to go into Georgetown, and she knows all the places, and those kids are just really I bet she knows places eating. that I don't go. Oh, man, and <laughs> they're historic places, little pubs from, from 150 years ago. Just really exciting. On, on food, though, one other thing I'd point out is if you're there and you're sightseeing and you're down at the National Mall, the Smithsonian's all have cafeterias or restaurants, mm-hmm. most of them not particularly notable. Uh, but there are three or four food courts in the locality that you might want to scope out. One of them is in the Ronald Reagan building at 14th Street, and one of them is at the Postal building on 12th Street. And both of the buildings, you're going to have to go through security to get in, but they're just like an airport. You, you mm-hmm. know, basically go through an x-ray machine, and they have excellent food courts. Another one, and my favorite food court in all of Washington, is at Union Station. Ah. Union Station. Uh, down that's been st- fixed up lately. Union Station it? is a great building. It was one of these old railroad stations built around the turn of the century. Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt yeah. was the one that yeah, uh, inaugurated right. it. And by the 1960s, they were thinking about tearing it down because it was an eyesore. And finally, in the 1980s, they totally refurbished it, millions of dollars. And trains still use it. Amtrak trains use it. Commuter sure. trains use it. And Union Station is, uh, it's got one floor where it's basically shops and restaurants, good restaurants. And the downstairs floor has a food court, a great food court. Quick word about safety, physical safety, danger, poor neighborhoods, dangerous neighborhoods. Uh, I love Washington, but like any urban area, Washington is going to have some areas you don't want to wander into. And 20% of the population of Washington, D.C., is uh, living below the poverty line. So it's still a tale of two cities. Yeah, pretty much. It's gotten a lot better in the last couple of years. I will say that everybody in the past knew Washington as the murder capital of the United States right. and all that. What an image. It's a terrible image, but in the last 10 years, the murder rates have gone down two-thirds. Whoa. I mean, it's really not even close to the top Why? anymore. Um, a lot of things have changed. I think, first of all, they've, they've had a series of really good uh, mayors and administrations. Right. There's better opportunities for jobs. The schools are improving. Lots of things like that. And it, better enforcement and everything, yes. So good government, even though the license plates say taxation without representation. And that is an interesting <laughs> aspect. Uh, you know, when I said before that uh, Washington was created as a planned city and so forth, you know, in the Constitution, it's not a state. You know, so they uh, pay taxes and they don't get any representation. In fact, in fact, I looked this up, the citizens of Washington, D.C., you know, there's about 600,000 people there. The citizens of Washington, D.C. pay more taxes than the citizens of the state of Alaska, for instance. And get less representation. They have no representation. No representation. And finally, you want to just become a temporary local and get out and have an activity. What sort of uh, events can you go to? Well, I think one of the great things to do if you're in town is to uh, search out something that's uh, really Washingtonian, that's politically related. Look up something like uh, the Brookings or Heritage uh, Foundations, the the think tanks. They run a lot of uh, lectures and talks with famous people coming in, do book talks or other things, and that'll be politically related in most part. Uh, one of the other great things the Smithsonian runs is through their resident associates program. They have a lot of lectures and, and special programs. You know, you can look those things up before you come. Those are great night activities usually, sometimes during the day. It's the kind of thing that people really, really think is so Washington. Rick Garman, will you be my guide when I come to your hometown? Absolutely, Rick. Great. Thanks so much for your tips. From the monuments of American history, we now turn to the timeless beauty of the American wilderness. Ken Burns helps us appreciate our national parks. It's next on Travel with Rick Steves. It's a summertime tradition for many American families to visit one of the country's national parks. Filmmaker Ken Burns spent six years crafting a beautifully filmed series about our national parks. It premiered on PBS in 2009. Ken joins us right now to give us an overview of what he learned about the nearly 90 million acres that we've set aside as wilderness parks and historical sites, and what that says about America. Ken Burns joins us now by phone from his home in New Hampshire. Ken, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. National Parks, America's Best Idea. This is just one in a 30-year series of chances for you to help us all define who we are as Americans. How did National Parks help answer that question? That's exactly right. Each one of the films, though they're on you know broadly diverse subjects, do pursue this question, who are we, who are those strange and complicated people who like to call themselves Americans? And we've always been drawn to the central themes of America, and one is, of course, place. And for the first time in human history, land was set aside, not for noblemen or kings or the very rich, as all land had been set aside, disposed up to that point, 
but for everybody and for all time. It's an utterly democratic impulse and could only have come from us, a people who were struggling with what it meant to live in a democracy. We think, in fact, and when I say we, I mean Dayton Duncan, who is the writer and co-producer and my dear, dear friend who suggested the idea of doing a film on the national parks to me, and it took me four seconds to say yes. <laughs> We think that it is nothing less than the Declaration of Independence applied to the landscape. And we call it, using Wallace Stegner, the great Western writer's provocative thing, that this is America's best idea. We know that the best ideas are articulated in the Declaration of Independence. But once you'd established a country under those principles or trying to live up to those principles, you'd be hard-pressed to find something that was a better idea than the national parks. I stumbled onto it one night, and it was mesmerizing. And what struck me, Ken, that, of course, you see Yosemite. It's just visually, it's just like you, you got to watch it. But it was the personal stories interwoven into that. It's so much more than, you know, waterfalls and big trees. Well, that was what we were afraid of. We didn't want to do a nature film. I mean, this is what too often happens. And then we stop at, at the very important beauty of nature. But we felt that, in fact, this was had a very human story behind it. And there were several dozen people that we thought we could introduce you to, most of whom you may not have heard of, a few of them like Theodore Roosevelt and John Muir you may know a little bit about. But to interweave their complicated story, almost like a Russian novel, but set against the backdrop of some of the most beautiful places on Earth. So, in fact, we do end up showing pretty pictures of nature and of wildlife. But they're in the service, I think, of something more than just ooh and ah, but really complex and utterly American ideas and, and I think really fascinating stories. Now, John Muir dealt with that issue a little bit, talking about how people come and go, but these natural wonders are imperishable, and together it kind of ties us through the ages. What was he getting at there? Well, you know, it's a wonderful thing. He talked about a special kinship among the lovers of nature, and he meant that at the highest level. You know, you stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon, and you look down and see the patient erosion of the Colorado River uh, that exposes Precambrian Vishnu Schist, rock that's been there for 1.7 billion years old. And, and that sort of reminds you of your insignificance. And at the same time, uh, just as we know that the egotist is diminished by his or her self-regard, we know that that feeling of humility actually makes us bigger. And so there's something that connects us, not just to this magnificent scene as we stand there on the South Rim, but to everything else in the universe, John Muir would say. And for me, it also, we were surprised by how personal these places were for everyone that we talked to, not just the historical figures we were excavating, but from the historians that we interviewed to help us tell those stories, they also insisted on telling us about these transformative moments they had when their parents took them. And then suddenly we realized that we had also been bound to our own sense of personal identity by remembering trips we had with our loved ones. So as you stand on the Grand Canyon, it matters the great layers, the grand geological library, Muir called it, that's before you. But it also really matters whose hand you're holding who you're seeing it with, what sort of intimate transmissions, the historian William Cronin called it, that go between the generations, that cement not only the love of place and the love of country, but also your own identity. And one thing that surprised me when I was absorbed in this, it made me more patriotic. You know, the first director of the National Park Service, a very complicated man named Stephen Mather, called the parks vast schoolrooms of Americanism. And he had a PR guy, a writer from New York, who went and had this revelation where he looked around a campfire and he realized there was a banker from Michigan and there was a farmer from Vermont and there was a somebody from this state and that state. And they were all, in that instance, just Americans. The trappings of, of class, of region had, had fallen away. And that what was so great about a national park, I mean, my goodness, the Grand Canyon would still be there if all the land was owned by rich people and there were mansions and you and I couldn't see it except for pictures in history books or if Yosemite was a gated community. But the sense of co-ownership of common wealth that is so much an essential part of our identity of people, which in recent years we've tended to abandon uh, in favor of the independent free agents we all think we can be. But in fact, things like World War II and the national parks remind us poignantly in two different ways 
how bound up we are with each other, how much commonwealth matters, shared sacrifice. And to me, the fact that we shared the sacrifice of setting aside Yellowstone or the Grand Canyon or Yosemite or all the other places adds to the riches that we all have in common. I mean, this is, if you think about it, we're all co-owners. And what is expected of ownership? Well, every once in a while, you might go to these places, you know, kick the tires, make sure someone was taking care of it, and then put it in your will for your posterity. And that's a pretty good bargain to be able to visit, as I said, you know, some of the most spectacular places on this planet. Okay, well, and then that just leads me to what is to me the logical next question. How does that apply to the politics of today as we are facing all of these austerity programs and the parks might be threatened? They are threatened, and in many cases at municipal and state levels, they've been closed down. They've just shut them down as if we didn't need them. It was so interesting that Franklin Roosevelt, in the middle of the Great Depression, and this was a devastating uh, period, and Franklin Roosevelt knew that these parks were the lifeline. People flooded to the parks. Their budgets went up. The attendance went up during the Depression. And the it was the sort budget of went up for parks yes, during the Depression. Was, the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Corps, one of the alphabet soup of programs the New Deal permitted, uh, which, of course, would be dismissed as socialism and make work, saved the lives of, literally, the lives of families around the country by allowing their young sons, their young men, to go off in a quasi-military-like setting uh, to work on bridges and roads and national park trails and lodges and campgrounds. Many of them we enjoy to this day. And so what the parks did is it offered solace from these tough times. It offered this sense of community that, yeah, we were going through the worst we'd ever seen since the Civil War, but we could get it together because we were a country that had these magnificent jewels. And it also put to work hundreds of thousands of young men who sent their paycheck. They were paid 30 bucks a month, and 25 of it had to go back to the family. So if you had a wealthy friend, let's just say you had a wealthy friend motivated only by greed, you could make a case that parks for our society are a good pragmatic investment. Well, I think you could make an argument always for the park's pragmatic stuff, but I like to think of it, you remember the movie we all love, It's a Wonderful Life? Oh, yeah. The question to me is, where do you want to live? Do you want to live in Bedford Falls or do you want to live in Potterville? <laughs> if there were no national parks, as I said before, the, the Grand Canyon would be lined by mansions of the rich. If there were no national parks, Zion and Yosemite, two of the most beautiful places I know, would be gated community. If there were no national parks, the Everglades would have long ago been drained and covered with endless uh, development of track housing and shopping malls and golf courses, and we would have lost touch with one of the most diverse environments, habitats on Earth. Without the national parks, Yellowstone would be called geyser world, and <laughs> we would have already have destroyed most of those fragile geothermal features with our avarice and our greed. And so I think what's so great is that the national parks help to remind us in the way the Declaration and the Constitution does and the buildings on the Mall in Washington, which are, by the way, part of the National <laughs> Park Service, that we've done some good things in our past. And remember, we don't just save places of spectacular natural beauty. We save relics of ancient cultures at Mesa Verde. We save battlefields of our struggles from Yorktown and Valley Forge to um, our most recent struggles. You could say Shanksville, Pennsylvania, which is a, a site. We also are a country willing to say we have aspects of our past that are so uh, thrilling, but this high school, this working inner-city high school in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, Central High School, where the crisis of school desegregation occurred in 1957, that's also hmm. still not only a high school, but a National Park Service site. And so are places of Indian massacres, and so are slave cabins. And so a great country can acknowledge its mistakes and be still greater still in the acknowledgement of that, and I know no other country that does that. And I think it's pretty clear we can better know where we're going if we know from where we came. And you know, Harry Truman idea. said it. He said it really well. He said, the only thing that's really new is the history you don't know. And <laughs> you're absolutely right, Rick. If you, if you don't know where you've been, how could you possibly know where you are and where you're going? And just a working knowledge of our past, the impulse to save the handiworks of our past uh, and these great natural cathedrals, it, it just ensures that we have a, a future, as paradoxical as that might seem. 
We've been talking all the philosophical value of parks and so on, but let's talk practical travel tips for a minute. If somebody's inspired by your series and they want to take the family and go enjoy the parks, what are a few practical tips to make sure that we have the best experience as we appreciate our great park system? Great question. I mean, first of all, it depends on how much time you have. And, you know, even getting out of that train that pulls up to uh, the south rim of the Grand Canyon and walk 100 yards and peer over is worth it. But taking time to get off the beaten track, to go beyond the parking lots and the, and the sort of the loop trails and the visitor center will reward families. And I think as we interviewed people for it, we found that those folks who had gone camping together uh, had spent that iconic in the station wagon and later the minivan, iconic seven- or eight-week uh, summer thing or even a four-week summer thing, bound memories together between each other that transcended the spectacular places they you know, were seeing. You know, Ken, it's funny you say that because I just stumbled on some old, old family photos of ours when I was four or five or seven years old, and it's those park magic moments where the family came together, where I gained an appreciation for nature. It, it planted a seed that stayed with me for the rest of, of my course. life. And, and it happened with me. It happened with Dayton Duncan, who is the writer and co-producer of our National Parks film. It seemed to happen with everybody we talked to, that they had some moment where when you go camping or when you just go visit these parks and even staying in the motels, and all, takes your family out of the normal quotidian <laughs> routine. And those are the stuff that memory tends to forget, but you remember those things. Oh, and and more- I don't know how many times since the film has been out that someone's come up to me and said, we saw the film and I realized... I hadn't taken my kids yet, and somebody would start to cry. And so we went last <laughs> summer, and we had the best time, and, you know, they push forward a little kid, and they're nodding in agreement. And when do you find kids and parents sort of as one? And I, I think we the greatest review I've ever had for a film was learning that attendance was up at least 10 or maybe 15 million at huh. the national parks over last year. And we know that in some small way, our series played some part in that. Oh, I love it. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Ken Burns about the national parks, America's best idea. Ken, when you were filming, I mean, you mentioned don't just park the car and look out the window, get out and hike. I would imagine you had a lot of gear. What was the most exercise that you got with your crew to get the shot you needed? There's a really funny story where, you know, and we do carry modest amount of weight, and it's an athletic event. You get up at 3 a.m., you drive like a maniac for uh, 45 minutes to some place, you park the car, you run up, and you think, oh, maybe the sun will come up here. No, 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 maybe it'll here. And we <laughs> found ourselves rushing around trying to determine what the very best place would be. And finally, we set our tripod, and we're out of breath, and the sun comes up. We get great, great shots. And just as we leave, we look down, and there's a little sign presented there by your and my park service that said ideal photographic spot oh right (laughs) that's good and 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 all of our professionalism went out the window (laughs) that's the important point every single shot you see in our film and i think there's some really beautiful cinematography anyone could get they're all accessible And, and they're all accessible they all belong to us from a TV producer and a photographer's point of view, you need to get the light. So that's probably why you get up earlier. Well, or... we've also found, you know, the Emily Dickinson called Sunrises and Sunsets the far theatricals of day. And I, I heard that about 35 years ago, and, and I always use that in answer to this, why get up at that time? It, it, the falls are going to look the same. They are, but they're not. That angle of light at, at sunrise or sunset mm. alters the thing and gives us a heightened perception. And all of us are awakened, however minutely, by these far theatricals. And I think that it's the magic hour. It is what we call in the business the magic hour. But if we bring our families, if you get up a little bit earlier, stay a little bit later before you go to dinner, you are rewarded with not just a great photograph for the album, but also a sense of inspiriting that John Muir would say contributed to that kinship we all seek with not only the parks and nature, but each other. Very briefly, what seasonal considerations did you have? Did you want to shoot off-season, summer? Well, we went at every time of day and night and in every season, and that was important to us, too. And I'd urge people who have not experienced a Yellowstone Park in the wintertime to go do it. A good deal of the park roads are closed and inaccessible except by ski vehicles, but it is open at the top at Mammoth Hot Springs, and you can take these 
different vehicles down to Old Faithful, where there is a lodge that's open year-round, as well as Mammoth Hot Springs. And it is well worth seeing, uh, as John Muir said, the morning of creation, because when you get out there, and not just watch the geothermal features, but perhaps round a bend and see 500 buffalo nestling next to the Yellowstone River, and you could easily be back in the last ice age. And that kind of sense of connection to nature, the winter scenes at Yellowstone can do. Ken, in your experience producing the national parks, I would imagine you had many moments when you were just quiet and awestruck. Yeah. Let's finish off taking us to one of those places. I had a moment in Yosemite National Park where after four or five days of intense labor, I couldn't sleep. And I had told everyone that this was my first national park, and that place had rearranged my molecules in ways that are almost spiritual, opened me up. But lying awake that night, I remembered, oh, my gosh, I'd forgotten a moment in 1959 when I was six years old, when my mother was dying of cancer, when my father took me on the first and only road trip we made together to Shenandoah National Park, which is a relatively small park. But suddenly this not repressed but forgotten memory came flooding back in. And there in one of the most spectacular places on earth, Yosemite, I was able to touch on something now 50 years old that bound at least temporarily our fragile and suffering family together as I went on this trip with my dad, and I can remember what it's like. I could suddenly re-remember, I guess is the better word, what his hand felt like in mine. And I'll be grateful forever to Yosemite for awakening that spirit in me and for being able to recall and now capture and share with my kids the memory of this, you know, impossibly young and terrified little boy in the midst of a developing family tragedy, uh, having just a weekend of grace with my dad. Ken Burns, producer of public television's The National Parks, America's Best Idea. Thank you so much for, in so many ways over the last 30 years, helping those Americans who want to know who we are find out exactly that. Best wishes with your work. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for technical help to Andrew Wakeling and Robin Cronin, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We've arranged many of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, Visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.